hello. You do it to yourself, as Radiohead sang. Well, that was certainly true of some of the subjects of our conversation today. I'm Stephen Coates. Welcome or welcome back. I don't know about you, but I always sort of felt that drugs or experimentation with drugs kind of began in the counterculture in the 50s and 60s and 70s. But we've discussed many times here that the counterculture itself didn't even begin in those decades. And neither does it appear did the use and misuse of psychoactive substances. So light up the candles, kick off your sandals, tune in, turn on, drop out for another episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture. We are devoted to underground stories here, oral testimonies, hidden histories and tales from beyond. You can check out all that we do, sign up for a bulletin and support us in any way you can at bureauoflostculture.com. Thanks so much to those who already have. We appreciate you. And we hope to see some of you at least at the Hay Literary Festival in Mid Wales on June the 1st, when we have not one, not two, but three live events. Now, right back at the beginning of science, there was a tradition of scientists doing it to themselves. Isaac Newton stuck a kind of knitting needle in his eye to note the various colourful distortions that he experienced as a result. In 1767, Scottish surgeon John Hunter reportedly injected pus into his own penis to prove that gonorrhea and syphilis were the same disease. Ouch. Don't try that at home, kids. Uh, And they're not, by the way. Well, these are just the attention-grabbing headlines about a long tradition of scientists using themselves as the subjects of experiments aimed at the furtherance of human knowledge. But as my guest today, Mike Jay, has written in his wonderful new book, Psychonauts, Drugs and the Making of the Modern Mind, that was never more true than when it came to psychoactive substances. But it was a tradition that became taboo in parallel with the changing attitude to such substances from the end of the Victorian era, when many of them could be bought over the counter. The notion that researchers might partake of drugs and report on their experiences if they were going to have something valuable to say about them became unacceptable. Well, we're going to discuss all that and the London psychonauts. Mike is one of our foremost historians of the psychoactive and madness. This isn't his first visit to the Bureau of Lost Culture. And it's a great pleasure to have you back, Mike. Welcome. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be back, Stephen. Yeah, Yeah. last time you were talking about mescaline. That's right. That was one of the first shows, actually, when you came to talk about mescaline. Is that right? Yeah, Secret History of Mescaline back in the day. I think we've got this thing called COVID in between times. And yeah, then, yeah. yeah. And you've been busy because you've produced this extraordinary book, Psychonauts, Drugs and the Making of the Modern Mind. I know you don't like being called an historian, but it is <laughs> a history of these people who have experimented throughout history on uh, substances which affect our consciousness. That's right, yeah. I grew up, I guess, like most people with the vague assumption that drugs had suddenly appeared in the 1960s. Yeah. And, uh, 
Um, in fact, it turns out that if you, you don't have to go very far back, you really have to go back just before 1900, and then you get into a very different world. Right? It's a world where even this word drugs that we're going to use a lot doesn't really exist at that time. And it's also a world where if you're a scientist or a psychologist or a philosopher or you know a writer or an artist or uh, whatever, then uh, if you're interested in what drugs do to the mind, then you would you know, usually start off just by taking them yourself and experiencing them yourself and see what happened. Right at the beginning of this book, you talk about in 1992, there's these two scientists, Andrew, is it Vale? Andrew Vile. Vile, yeah. yeah. And Wade Davis. And they've basically been, you know, trying to work out this puzzle about Mexican prehistory. And there's all these images and representations of the buffalo toad. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in, there's an assumption that it's to do with ritual and religious processes. They're not quite sure why. And then they make this connection with another toad from the Sonoma Desert, which has produces this toxin, right? But it's actually it's mm-hmm. hallucinogenic, right? You know, trying to establish this cultural, anthropological link. And they work out that actual fact there, is, there are ways of making it less toxic. If you do certain things with it, you dry it out and you smoke it. During this process, they shock horror, try it themselves. And from then on, when they write the report of it and they report what the experience on it, tell us what happens. Well, that kind of becomes the story, the fact that they um, smoked this toad venom, which is Mm. seen where in the sort of right, you know, post-Reagan sort of war on drugs Mm. era. Mm. And, um, you know, this is seen as the most kind of delinquent drug fiend behavior imaginable that these scientists would actually take this drug themselves and then write up in the report and actually even write up in their report that, uh, you know, they had a pretty mind expanding and uh, interesting and quite pleasant experience. And uh, yeah, that really becomes um, the narrative. And what's fascinating about that for me is uh, about that moment is that, as I said, you don't have to go very far back before you get to the point where um, scientists were doing this all the time mm. and yet the scientific community by the 1990s seems to have forgotten that that ever happened and then of course it's only a short hop a short toad hop forwards <laughs> to the present day where mm. now suddenly these um, smoking these toad um, toxins and having psychedelic experience on them is the latest kind of uh, thing in the sort of uh, you know frontier of spirit spirituality and wellness that you know, try taking certain drugs has suddenly become in the 21st century. Well, we were just talking before we started, then I just talking this uh, another article in the Guardian about ayahuasca, talking about it in kind of scientific but, but positive terms, and you yeah. know, we're, we seem to be on the brink of this reassessment of psychedelic substances. Simultaneously, nitrous oxide is just about to be banned by the yeah. British government. What are they thinking? Yeah, <laughs> just drive it underground, give it back to the drug dealers. You know, deregulate it, take away the information. Kids aren't going to stop using it. We know, we know all that stuff anyway. Yeah. So, so, so you've got this kind of prohibitions going on at the same time as this kind of new. That's right. Well, let's start off with the definition, Mike. What is a psychonaut? That's a very useful word. I think it um, emerges from a German novel by Ernst Jünger. It's about a futuristic world mm. where. Uh, there are psychonauts, people who take uh, novel, newly designed, um, mind-altering drugs to voyage around in the sort of interior space of their own mind. Mm. In the period that uh, the book's mostly about, the 19th century, um, there wasn't a special word for taking drugs to explore the mind. The word that you know everybody used was a self-experiment. But mm. self-experiment was what uh, 
you know, scientists did in all kinds of ways, you know, in the 18th and 19th century, you know, all those reckless gonzo experiments about passing powerful electric currents through themselves and severing their nerves to see how long it took them to grow back. And uh, who was the guy who injected you know, his own penis with? John Hunter. John Hunter, the, yeah, uh, yeah. Swallowing and regurgitating things to see how digestive juices work. So actually in that world of the self-experimenting scientists, drug experiments were not particularly remarkable and certainly not at the more dangerous end people did sensible things like sterilize their needles and you know work their way up from small doses and obvious common sense stuff so psychonauts are very nice words to have Junger who came up with it um Albert Hoffman who um, synthesized LSD in the 1930s was a huge Ernst Jünger fan, so it made its way out into the counterculture. So people these days talk about psychonauts or sort of being psychonauts quite a lot. And the way people use it these days is it's like, because within institutional science, you know, if you're a neuroscientist or a psychopharmacologist studying uh, the effects of drugs, you'd, you're not allowed to take them yourself. That's kind of taboo, as, as discussed. So psychonaut these days tends to mean someone who's a bit of a rebel or a renegade, somebody a bit edgy, you know, mm. a Timothy Leary or a Terence McKenna or someone working outside the frame. But I wanted to reclaim it and mm. to use it to take us back to a time when, yes, there were rebels and renegades, of course, but there were also leading figures in science and medicine who were also psychonauts. Here is a sidebar about the famous chemist Humphrey Davy. Davy, working with Thomas Beddoes, investigated various gases, particularly with regard to their toxicity, which he seemed often to do by inhaling them. One, nitrous oxide, he had found could be inhaled without any damaging effects whatsoever. Davy and Beddoes heated ammonium nitrate crystals in an alembic, collected the gas in an air holder from which Davy inhaled through a breathing tube. As he filled his lungs, he noticed an unexpected sensation, a highly pleasurable thrilling in the chest and extremities. As he continued, the objects around me became dazzling, my hearing more acute, and the sensations built towards a climax in which the sense of muscular power became greater, and at last an irresistible propensity to action was indulged in. Meadows recorded that Davy leapt violently around the laboratory shouting for joy. For his own part, Davy retained only vague recollections of these ecstatic moments. And were it not for the scrawled notes he discovered the following morning, I should have even doubted their reality. As their experiments progressed, Davy realised that a new language of feeling, as he called it, was required to describe the effects of the gas. The standard question of medical description, how do you feel, was tested to its limits by a torrent of sensations that encompassed dizziness, tingling, a sense of mental exhilaration, an onrushing cosmic epiphany that rapidly dissolved into incoherence and frequently hysterical laughter with no obvious cause. Davy and Beddoes attempted a few trials on patients with lung diseases. One responded to the question, how do you feel, with, I do not know, but very queer. Another responded, obliquely, but suggestively, I feel like the sound of a harp. Yeah, it's a, it's a real um, sudden turn, and then quite, you know, around the turn of the century, around 1900, you know, because of the 1890s, um, you know, we think of it as the sort of 
decadent era, the fantasy Eckler, where uh, people were fascinated by exotic and strange experiences. And, uh, you know, even though it's popular magazines like The Strand, you know, whatever, were all full of stories of people having bizarre drug experiences. Then everything kind of straightened up once the 20th century started. In America, it was kind of what was called the progressive era, uh, sort of the end of this kind of laissez-faire individualistic tendency in society and towards something that was much more kind of uh, socially based and, you know, where citizens were able to group together and to come together in movements and try and change society. Uh, which they did, of course, in many positive ways. But one of the big signature movements of that era was the temperance movement towards prohibition. And of course, as we know, by the time you get to 1920, alcohol is prohibited in the United States and controlled everywhere else. And actually, you know, if you go back and look at that period, alcohol is the drug that people are most worried about. Mm. But these other, uh, other drugs, which start to get grouped together for the first time, start to be seen as a problem. So I think mm. from that point on, the language around drugs changes. They're a social problem, delinquents and criminals, you know, they're a medical problem. There's this thing called addiction that suddenly comes along. Mm. And once they're criminalized, of course, like nitrous oxide, they become a, a criminal problem. That's a very different world. And it's, you know, I think there are lots of reasons why things changed at that point. Mm. And some of them are social and some of them are political, some of them are medical, some of them are scientific. Jim, what hasn't changed and I assume what has always been the case is that we, most of us, want to change our state. And many of us want to change our state by using substances which have these psychic effects. I mean, that just seems to be a significant part of a significant part of the human experience, is it not? No, that's right. And uh, across all cultures, you know, when we mm. talk about this, we tend to focus on, you know, South America or the mm. Amazon or mm. Mexico or whatever, but uh, uh, we, you know, we tend to assume that Western culture was drug-free mm. because, as I said, we tend to assume that we only got interested in all this stuff in the 1960s. But of course, through the 19th century, a lot of what we now call drugs, you could just go into a pharmacy mm. and buy, mm. you know, cocaine and heroin and morphine and cannabis and nitrous oxide. Yeah, mm. one of the things about nitrous oxide, it always needed a bit of kit to go with mm. it. So you tended to have people who would go around lecture halls with like some big dispensers of gas and kind of dispense it. So you got sort of public nitrous oxide um, parties and so on. But yeah, by the by sort of 1900, people started to realize that, you know, if you went into a pharmacy and you bought a little bottle of patent medicine, which was cough medicine or something like that, well, it would probably have a bit of morphine or opium in because that's good for suppressing the cough reflex and uh, probably have a bit of cocaine in because that dries up the nasal passages. Easily have a bit of hashish in or something else, but it didn't have no ingredients on the packet. And, uh, you know, people would take it and unsurprisingly, they'd feel better after taking it. And uh, that's uh, the sort of 1900, 1910 was the time when, you know, consumers woke up and went, hang on, what's actually in all these mm. things? Are we being dosed with extremely dangerous, powerful, addictive drugs without being told? And were they? <laughs> Yeah, they were. And that was the point. I mean, that was one of the big initiatives of mm. the uh, progressive era was to mm. uh, insist on labeling. This was true mm. of foods as well. You know, food was all full of all these toxic adulterants as well as uh, medicines. And uh, that was all, you know, so there's a process of cleaning that all up and passing mm. laws saying that people had to, uh, you know, have accurate ingredients on their bottles and so mm. on. And uh, 
And the more you talk about sort of focus on the risks and the dangers of these drugs, the harder it becomes to really appreciate any positive effects mm. that they might have. The public conversation becomes focused, you know, as it still, you know, is or was until recently on uh, the problem of these things. What are we going to do about them? Assuming, of course, that we are not drug takers, but what are we going to do about those people? You know, so I think that's that kind of framing mm. that we've all grown up with and mm. we're all so familiar with. That really starts around 1900. We're going to dive in in a second, but just on that, because you do talk about, you know, in the, in the media to this day, if they want a drug expert to comment on something that's happened, nitrous oxide being banned or whatever, who do they get in? They get in an addiction psychotherapist yeah. or they get in somebody who deals with uh, drug rehabilitation. They don't get in somebody who's a regular user of nitrous oxide to talk about the experience of it, right? right. So they're, they're not actually a drug expert because they don't and haven't used mm -hmm. the drug. Now, it would be a different kind of conversation. It might end up with the same results, would it not, if you actually engaged people who've used, experimented, tested the drugs and can report on the experience of them themselves, also involved in that conversation. That's right. And that's why I've been so interested in getting back to this era where mm. that was the uh, thing that used to happen. But, but yeah, now in that sort of general, you know, policy, media sort of uh, discourse, if you've had the experience of the drug and know what you're talking about, that doesn't make you an expert. It makes you part of the problem. You know, it disqualifies you're, you're, you, in fact, from it, it being does. able to take part in the conversation. Exactly. Right? Yeah, you can't be trusted. Let, Mike, let's dive in now. It's time, I think. Um, tell us about the experiments at the Society of Psychical Research. This was a very interesting London scene. We know quite a lot about the Society of Psychical Research. It was a group of uh, quite distinguished, you know, sort of leading philosopher at Cambridge University and those things. People who start who were very interested in mystical experiences, spiritual experiences. They coined the word telepathy that we still use. And they used the tools of science to go around investigating um, seances and um, hypnotism and, you know, people who seem to have supernatural powers. Uh, and much less discussed, they were also um, very interested in the use of drugs to induce mystical experiences and out-of-body experiences. Um, the uh, American uh, branch of the Society of Psychical Research was sort of steered from the beginning by William James, the mm. great psychologist, and he in 1882 had a had a go on his own with nitrous oxide he synthesized some in a laboratory and inhaled it and had a really powerful mystical experience which carried on fascinating him for the rest of his life so he made contact with the society of psychical research here in london they carried out a lot of experiments i think what's interesting about this is that uh you know up until the middle of the 19th century you know these would have been regarded as religious experiences you right. know if you had a mystical experience or a vision that would have been the frame that it would have been understood in but by the late 19th century other frameworks were available you know this might be indeed a religious experience this might be god talking to you but uh, equally it might be just a, a mystery of the brain that or it might be um we need to rethink the mind and the way it works is there a subliminal mind or an unconscious mm -hmm. which normally we're not aware of but these drugs allow us to access or indeed as some members of the society of psychical Re research thought um is this actually another dimension that you're accessing when you huff away on nitrous oxide or ether or chloroform or one of these newly discovered psychedelics and you pass out and you leave your body and you 
come back having had this experience of being like maybe on the astral plane or in some spiritual world. So all these different interpretations of what was going on became possible. And because drugs are a sort of material, physical cause, they're in many ways much more attractive to experiment with than seances or things which have so many variables or waiting around for a spontaneous mm. mystical experience. You can go, okay, let's try this drug at this dose in this laboratory and then let's try it again. And uh, Some method can be brought to it and some predictability, which is that if, okay, if, you, if you do this, if you inhale this, something's going to happen. Right? That's and right. If you inhale a bit of it, this is going to happen. And if you inhale a lot of it, who knows what's going to happen, right? But you've got some methodology and some predictability, right? That's right. So uh, William Ramsey, for example, was a member of the Society of Psychical Researchers, also a chemist of, uh, of gases. He discovered um, argon and krypton and neon and won a Nobel Prize and all that. But he was also on a British Medical Association committee looking into the anaesthetic gases and what they did. And he addressed the... Uh, Society of Psychical Research, um, you know, saying I've done this with all these different inhalants and solvents and gases uh, over 50 times, he said, you know, and I've kind of got to know the experience and I've read my philosophy and, you know, I've read different accounts and I've got to, you know, a sense of this, how this goes. And I always get to this place that just feels more real to me than reality itself. Do you know which particular gas he was talking about there? Yeah, he was talking about ether and chloroform and nitrous oxide, mm. all of which were used in surgery at that point. And he said they all have slightly different effects, but they basically take you to the same place, mm. to this place that feels like more real than reality itself, you know, and you come back feeling, wow, I've seen the secret of the universe. But uh, And so you'd, had, so you'd had some insights maybe as well. So he'd, be, he'd basically huffed on each of these and possibly mm -hmm. on Krypton and Neon and Argon as well, but not had an effect or not had a pl same I think he, it, he was focusing on the anaesthetics there because okay. it was part of a sort of medical thing of trying to mm. look at what these anaesthetic gases did. Mm. And uh, so he was being doing tests where he had to kind of keep inhaling um, ether or nitrous oxide and keep sort of, you know, shouting out numbers or, you know, sub subtracting seven from a hundred or, um, you know, okay, so there was, there was were being right, tested. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So also some, to me anyway, surprising members of the um, society, H.G. Wells. I didn't actually know he was a huffer. No, H.G. Well, H.G. Wells was a... He wasn't a member of the SPR, but he was, he was a, he was a science journalist at that point. And mm. sort of through the 1880s and 1890s, he kept a very good, uh, very good eye on the scientific scene and, uh, wrote lots of short stories, um, uh, which included drugs. I think they were, they were great for fiction writers like Wells mm. because, uh, they had one foot in the world of science. So they sounded kind of plausible and scientific and up to the minute. But then they had another foot in sort of the world of, you know, sort of magic and alternate realities. So mm. you could, uh, um, you could have, um, you know, these, uh, you, you, you could introduce a drug into a story and who knows what might happen. And mm. in fact, you know, look, this is the great age of the storytellers we're in and you know they're all you know you think of Jekyll and Hyde you mm. know and Sherlock Holmes you know drugs are a great subject for all those writers and for Wells they're kind of um, uh, he wrote a lot about a lot of stories about what, is, what was called double consciousness the idea of your mind or your personality being in two places at once and uh, uh, 
That was one of the themes that he paid a lot of attention to. And yeah, he wrote a great story called uh, Under the Knife about uh, somebody being operated on and uh, uh, being given chloroform on the um, operating table and then uh, sort of leaving their body. This is all based on accounts like, you know, in magazines like the or journals like the Lancet, mm. um, just a medical journal, right? Yes, in medical journals, doctors got interested in saying, yeah, "Has anybody else had strange experiences with, you know, chloroform or ether or any of these anaesthetics?" And uh, lots of people wrote in and said, "I had." out-of-body experiences and this is what wells does in his story he kind of picks up on all these anecdotes and shapes them into a story where somebody's you know hovering up on the uh, um, ceiling of the uh, operating theater and looking down on their body and then kind of zooming up out of london and out you can see the whole count home counties and then the whole planet and zooming up into space and having this huge cosmic revelation and this is the kind of story that you could publish in you know the best-selling magazines that people were fascinated to read because you know, these kind of ex ex experiments and uh, these stories about drug experiences weren't just confined to a scientific elite. They were, um, you know, fascinating to the general public. Was H.G. Wells partaking himself? Not as far as I know. He doesn't um, talk about it very much. He talks a bit about his, his use of tobacco. But mm. That's about it. But he writes about, um, yeah, he writes about hallucinogenic mushrooms as well mm. as um, chloroform he's always interested in ways in which science can unfold a un mm. world of sort of wonders and marvels and it's morality free at the moment isn't it it's still part of the great scientific endeavor the discovery of the universe you know that was progressing at speed at this point wasn't it you know with telephony and radio and photography and even spiritualism was anything could actually happen anything could be true for a while yeah it's a fascinating time and particularly sort of the the mind i mean that's one of the reasons i sort of think this period is so interesting is uh before that there was kind of this idea that you know the mind was reasonable and rational and under that were the instincts you know that we have to kind of keep down or mm. keep under control and you just get from a lot of different directions in the late 19th century the idea that actually the mind is a bit more complicated mm. than that and the bit mm. that we're aware of and the reasonable bit and the conscious bit are not the only bit and mm. there are all kinds of other bits there mm. and hypnosis for example you know what's what's mm. going on there people suddenly manifest different personalities mm. they speak in languages they're not familiar with of course sigmund freud was a cocaine user wasn't he yeah that's right that's an episode that I think is is really fascinating and not looked at very much because Freud himself retreated from it when it all went horribly wrong and all his biographers kind of ignored it and minimized it. Yeah, the very young Freud, you know, before psychoanalysis, very interested in cocaine and uh, wrote a lot about it. And that's about what it told you about the mind, you know, and the fact that, uh, you know, if it gave you all this energy, where did that all come from? You know, could it be that if you change your state of mind, and you become kind of stimulated and positive and engaged that actually unlocks physical energy as well. It's this period of the discovery of the mm. unconscious and the beginnings of psychology as a discipline. You know, mm. first people calling themselves psychologists appearing at this point. Drugs are a fascinating and valuable tool for all these investigations. And, you know, it's the very beginnings also of what we think of as modernism and the arts. People starting to produce experimental work that fractures our normal perspectives or sense of time and space and, um, you know, takes us into strange new realities. Mm. Not surprisingly, when you look at the roots of all that, there's an awful lot of drug experiences in there too. Well, speaking of which, let's move on to the Golden Dawn. The occult, you know, as you call it, the decadent milieu. Maud gone, W.B. Yeats. And of course, 
fascinating Havelock Ellis. I mean, tell us about them. The 1880s, 1890s is the great period of those occult magical societies mm. of which Golden Dawn is the most famous. They mostly had very strict anti-drug policies because the people they were trying to attract were quite you know, respectable establishment types, you know, Freemasons and theosophists and, uh, you know, the general accepted wisdom was, well, you shouldn't dabble in drugs because you can't control them and you can get addicted and uh, you can have a nervous breakdown and terrible things can happen. But outside the formal meetings, you know, someone like um, W.B. Yeats, who was a, um, a member of the Golden Dawn, was also associated with the Society of Psychical Research and... Uh, a member of the uh, the Rhymers Club, which was a little sort of coterie of um, writers. That world included quite a lot of people who used drugs, particularly um, Arthur Simons, who was a literary critic, the one who was most closely connected to Paris of Baudelaire and the decadent and symbolist writers. So there was um, quite a lot of hashish mm. circulating in that world. But it's interesting to see how they used it, because a lot of what they were trying to do was to find ways of... Um, meditating on um, symbols or sort of with uh, within sort of esoteric systems that you could use to open up your mind your subconscious mind and connect to um, mm. spiritual influences or the astral plane Yeats did that in his spare time particularly with as you mentioned Maud Gone who was a woman he was absolutely obsessed by beautiful new woman very dedicated to the cause of Irish independence so they were both deeply into Celtic mysticism and magic and so on and she wrote about her use of hashish and chloroform and um, coca uh, very unusually for a woman one of the annoying things about sort of 19th century science is of course it was a club of entirely white men here is a sidebar about the actress, activist, feminist and mystic Maud Gorn. Here are some extracts from Mike's book about her. She was the muse and inspiration for the poet W.B. Yeats, who immortalised her in some of his most famous verses. Yeats introduced Gorn to the ceremonies of the Golden Dawn. She was eager to learn its secrets, but unimpressed by its membership. As an independent new woman and staunch anti-colonialist, she regarded the order as the epitome of British middle-class dullness, overlaid with an English love of play-acting and grand-sounding titles. Nonetheless, she absorbed some of their practices into her own magical experiments in astral travel, Celtic second sight, and with Yeats' telepathy. Gorm was an occasional user of various drugs, and publicly endorsed Vin Mariani's coca wine as part of her political campaign. Your coca wine, by fortifying my voice, will allow me to make my country better known. She experimented with chloroform and found that it could help her get out of her body, but she worried about becoming addicted to it and discovered that she could achieve similar results simply by imagining and visualizing its effects. On one occasion, Gon also used hashish, which had convinced me of the possibility of being able to leave the body and see people and things at a distance, and to travel as quick as thought, she reported. She found it effective for controlled visualization or self-hypnosis. Gon, on hashish, visualized an indigo egg with a yellow square in the center, her body surrounded by its spirit, merging with a red triangle. She drifted in reverie, through the essences, symbols, shapes, elements and colours as the material world fell away. She created a gateway into the astral dimension. Here, 
elemental spirits might be encountered. They were to be greeted respectfully and with unwavering self-control. The following morning, fresh ideas and inspirations would arrive. Maud Gorn played a very important role in the struggle for Irish independence, but her colourful life also included private tragedy. Before she met Yeats, she'd begun a relationship with a right-wing French politician called Lucien Milvoy. They had a baby, George. Two years later, George died, probably through meningitis. As Hugh Schofield reported, over the next years, the grief-stricken Maud was drawn into the occultist and spiritualist worlds that were deeply important to Yeats. She asked his circle of friends about the possibility of reincarnation and one, the writer and mystic George Russell, assured her that it was indeed possible to recreate a dead child's soul if the parents went about it the right way. Convinced, and having inherited a large sum of money on the death of her father, Maud paid for a memorial chapel and then a crypt beneath it, George's coffin was laid. In late 1893, she recontacted Lucien Melvoy, from whom she'd separated after George died. She asked him to meet her at the chapel. They entered, opened the metal doors leading down to the crypt and descended a small metal ladder. And then, next to the dead baby's coffin, they had sexual intercourse. The purpose of the act was to recreate the baby's soul in the new baby that she would conceive later. By having sex next to the corpse, it was hoped that the process of metempsychosis, the transmigration of the soul, would be made easier. Now whether the soul of George transmigrated or not might be a matter for metaphysicians. But what is certain is that in August 1894, Maud Gorn had another baby. Within these occult explorations, what's interesting is you get a bigger range of people. You get people of colour, people from very different backgrounds. But you still had to be pretty bold and brave as a woman to write about your drug experiences in those days. If you cared at all about your reputation, you were making yourself a hostage to fortune. Probably wouldn't have been taken seriously as well in the same sort of way. That's right, yeah. In the same way that women weren't taken seriously as mm. scientists, they weren't seen mm. as objective enough or whatever. And that little coterie is also where the first psychedelic experiences in uh, Britain take place with what we now regard as major psychedelics in 1897 when uh, uh, W.B. Yeats and Arthur Simons were off in, uh, off in Paris doing their thing. Uh, Havelock Ellis, who you mentioned, was staying in their apartment, which is in Fountain Court in the Temple District, one of those lovely little courtyards mm. just off the off the Strand. And uh, he'd read about um, peyote, this uh, hallucinogenic cactus, and managed to get hold of a sample and spent an amazing day and an evening on peyote, having sort of a wonderfully rich visual aesthetic experience and writing it up in enormous detail. And then when Yates and Simons came back, he gave them some peyote. And there's a whole, a little circle there of sort of psychedelic experimentation way back in the 1890s, long, long before we think of that sort of thing as starting. He's worthy of a whole show by himself, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he is. I mean, tell us a little bit about him because he, he was this extraordinary character. He's remembered most now for his for studies of sex that he wrote and co-wrote. He was the first person really to write scientifically and non-morally about homosexuality and so on. He was pioneer of all sorts of socialist thinking and free thinking. He had elaborated this wonderful 
progressive vision of society at that time. He was also a doctor, so he wrote up his peyote experiments for the, for the Lancet, mm. for the medical crowd. Did a lot of writing as an, as an art critic, more broadly a cultural critic. That's what's so fascinating about the way he writes up his peyote experience. He almost writes it up as if he's been to an art exhibition. He's mm. kind of critiquing these visions that he's getting. He's trying to describe them and he's saying, you know, it might look like, have you seen those beautiful Maori carvings? Mm. It's a bit like that or, you know, that sort of beautiful, you know, in, in Morocco, you can see that lovely filigreed sort of lace work <laughs> and tile work. You know, he had this enormous frame of um, artistic and cultural references to draw on. And that was the way psychedelics first appeared. It was not a spiritual experience. It was not like a medical thing. It was certainly not trying to morally assess whether this experience was good or bad. He was just immersed in it. It was an aesthetic thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I think he was a true countercultural figure, right? And in some ways, it sort of represents one pole of the psychedelic experience which happened in the counterculture of the sort of 60s and 70s. He sort of got it all, hasn't he, really? There, I think he has. You know. And I think the psychedelic experience is an intensely aesthetic experience mm. for people. And these mm. days we don't talk about it like that. You know, people want to know what does science say about this? What's it going on in our brain? Is it good for therapy? What, that, what does art say about it? What's the aesthetic aspect of mm. it? Just to take it back to that, right? Yeah. Let's yeah, not try right. and see it as a way of getting more productivity by microdosing acid or or even actually coming back from the brink through therapy. You know, mm -hmm. what about just as an ex aesthetic experience? Maybe that's enough. No, I think that's right. And I think in a way, you know, I mean, ever since the word psychedelic was coined, mm. that's kind of, people use it to describe, you know, mostly, you know, a visual aesthetic <laughs> sound as well. But um, there's a whole idea of what psychedelic is supposed to look like. And it's all lots of oversaturated, mm. swirly, clashing mm. colours. I mean, mm. I don't know. I don't know about you, but my personal psychedelic experiences don't look very like kind of what psychedelic so, art is supposed to be. Not yeah. mine, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, you're going to get psychedelic cheesecake soon, aren't you? You know, it's uh, it's becoming back on brand, isn't it? You know, but another character who you talk about, who I'd never heard of, is absolutely fascinating. Is James Lee? James Lee is a fascinating character. I've been on his trail for. Uh, for a long time, ever since I came across his book, which is a memoir called Underworld of the East, which he wrote in his retirement. What's so fascinating for him is he's he's so recognisable from our sort of modern, you know, drug counterculture perspective. Mm. And he's very much outside the loop of all this drug literature in the 19th century. Everybody's read De Quincey, everybody's mm. read Baudelaire, everybody knows how this is supposed to go. But James Lee doesn't appear to have done. I mean, he's um, a working class figure. He's from Teesside. He's an engineer and a draftsman. Through the 1890s and 1900s, he has a whole succession of um, jobs out in the the colonies, mostly working on sort of uh, mines and railroads and being an engineer on these kind of projects. And he says he just found life in London so dull. He wasn't interested in sport or anything that everybody else was interested in. He wanted to have a, an interesting time. And uh, his first posting was out in Assam in northeast India. And very quickly he notices that the people in the mine he's working with are all um, chewing betel nut and they're all taking hashish. And he meets a local doctor there and when he gets uh, a bit of malaria and fever, the doctor gives him some morphine and a needle and shows him how to inject it. Then he finds that his dose is going up a bit and wearing off. And so his doctor gives him some cocaine. So he starts kind of you know, taking cocaine and morphine together and finds that you can use them 
each one of them to taper the dose off the other. And then he gets fascinated by hashish and kind of getting really, really high and realizes that, you know, if you take huge doses of hashish and then you can also sort of inject yourself with cocaine and you can get into the state where you're pretty much having, you know, sort of, you know, virtual reality hallucinations in front of you all the time. And he writes all this stuff. You know, he's very practical being an engineer. You know, he's very interested in, in these experiences. They become, you know, his favorite thing. And he wants to know how you can keep on doing them and why some people get into trouble with drugs and how not to so he's full of hints and tips William Burroughs was one of the first people to rediscover James Lee's book and uh, he absolutely loved it and you can you can see exactly why and you know because James Lee is that sort of perfect Burroughsian countercultural figure but there he is you know back in the 19th century doing this pretty much on his own you mm. know there's no kind mm. of real um, scene around that he's doing it with um, he's fascinated by drug scenes, drug haunts, as he calls them, opium dens mm. and other places. And he wanders around Sumatra where he has a posting in the jungle asking uh, local people to provide him with any samples of intoxicating plants and keep discovering these strange new drugs. Here is another sidebar about the psychonaut James Lee, as described by Mike in his book. Sometime around 1910, James Lee returned from Southeast Asia to Britain, this time bringing his Indian wife, Mulkey, with him. As usual, he detoxed from cocaine and morphine during the voyage with his practiced method of reduction. He was en route to a new assignment as engineer for a West African gold mine and decided to take a holiday in London. We found drugs easy to come by and were soon pretty well lit up by frequent doses of cocaine, morphia and cannabis. Normally he stayed indoors when on large doses of drugs, but on this occasion he took an evening stroll down Piccadilly. The people around me seemed to be abnormal in every conceivable way, he reported. Some would appear to be about 10 feet high, while others would appear to be microscopic. All the time there were spirit-like shapes floating around me, constantly coming and going, and being replaced by fresh ones. I strolled along, seeming in fairyland. I was in an intense condition of happiness, without a single care in the world. I seemed to be walking on air. Lee mused on his hallucination as he walked back down Piccadilly, under a blaze of light from illuminated signs and brilliantly lighted shop fronts, the pavements crowded with well-dressed people bent on enjoying themselves. He was interrupted in his reverie by a young girl, whom he immediately recognised as a cocaine user, with dilated pupils, an exhausted expression, and a pathetic little droop, like that of a tired child. He accepted the invitation back to her flat on one of the back streets behind Shaftesbury Avenue, where he asked her how long she'd been taking cocaine. She pretended innocence until he reassured her that he'd been using it for years. She expressed astonishment at his good health and explained his regime to her. He asked to see her shringe and inspected the leather washers and the screw caps. Do you ever take it apart and thoroughly clean it with carbolic or sublimate? She didn't. Her system was becoming poisoned by septic matter, while her vitality was being quickly sapped by loss of sleep and lack of adequate nourishment. He left the girl with a schedule of instructions to follow and never saw her again. It was a salutary reminder that not everyone embarked on their drug careers as well prepared as he had been and that a new generation of drug habitués was growing up beyond the reach of both the law 
and medical expertise. He's almost like a, a figure from our own times mm. in a way. He strips away all that kind of moral mm. layer of conversation that built up in the 20th century and mm. um, gives us something that's much more like what you might read on a, uh, you know, on a, on, on a drug website or something online today. I mean, he is the kind of, in a way, like the archetypal psychonaut in some respects, isn't he, from that mm. point of view? Amateur, I mean, informed amateur, but he's mm -hmm. actually sort of investigative, immersive. Mm -hmm. He's doing it himself. Mm -hmm. He's not just observing other people doing it. He's reporting back. Yeah, I mean, he's... You know, good and the bad and sort of providing information about how to navigate this landscape of psychic states. Totally self-taught. He's. I mean, he sees himself as a pioneer. He doesn't know anybody mm. else who does this. And he's got his sources of information. Mm. One of which is sort of Western medicine that he gets mostly through Indian mm. doctors, and another of which is like local people. You know, mm. he's uh, he's not one of those um, sort of colonial figures who hangs around in sort of English club houses. He kind of avoids all other mm. English people because uh, you know he finds them a bit dull. So he's got um, various <laughs> sources of information, but his main source of information is his own experiments, Experience, and he starts yeah. to take yeah. them more seriously and kind mm. of log the doses and the times and the doing it all properly scientifically but in a self-taught way then this pivot comes that you mm. talked about this kind of morality pivot but actually of course the figure who you talk about too who is of this next era of mm -hmm. course who became another very like poster boy boy is probably the wrong word poster beast for the yeah. um, <laughs> for the counterculture is alistair crowley right who that's you know, right he, he writes the diary of a drug fiend you know he's public about his drug use but he's public about it in a provocative way to establish his credentials as anti-establishment sort of reveling somewhat in the scandal it's a flag for his transgressiveness isn't it yeah that's right i mean that's yeah, this word drugs that we throw around now didn't really make any sense in the 19th century because it was like, you know, most of them you could buy in a pharmacy. Mm. Some of those sort of mm. things that surgeons and doctors use. There were other mm. things, you know, like Havelock Ellis's peyote that you get mail order from some herbal company. These didn't, you know, these weren't a separate category. But uh, and then you start to see things like sort of dangerous drugs or um, inebriating drugs or addictive mm. drugs and then it's gradually about 1900 you start to see people dropping that adjective and drugs just comes to mean this set of substances most mostly opiates and cocaine hashish not so much at, at this point yeah then there's a very sort of strong spiritual progressive environmental movement in the 1910s and 1920s by and large it's not about drugs the people who are interested in sort of uh, spiritual evolution and spiritual growth regard drugs as a kind of rather gross thing that's sort of pumped out by big industrial pharmaceutical companies and uh, that just sedate and stupefy people and stop them from waking up so you know at this point if you're a sort of progressive cultural figure you almost always dissociate yourself from drugs i think this is where alistair crowley kind of um made himself deliberately very distinctive he, I mean, he was younger than the golden dawn lot yates and so on you know when they were doing their um peyote and um hashish you know he was still in school so he comes along in a later era and uh you know, embraces drugs as a part of his magical tradition, mm. whereas people like McGregor Mathers and the Golden Dawn didn't want to frighten the horses. That wasn't the image they wanted to project. 
And Crowley it is. He talks very beautifully about how the drugs like hashish loosen the girders of the soul. These mm, are things mm. that allow you to shake off the rational and your social self, drill deeper, find these kind of um, interior worlds within yourself and these spaces that you can, using magical practices, you can uh, control and harness and you know, they become sources for magic. I mean, he writes very beautifully, actually, about his drug experiences, doesn't he, quite often. But he also reveled in the fact that he that he was a fiend, didn't he? I mean, he wasn't just that, you know, he was aware of the sort of scandalous aspects of it as well, right? And he kind of enjoyed that. He did. It's, this is just about the time when you start to get the beginnings of what you might call a drug subculture properly. And I think that's because in the 19th century... You know, there were little circles of drug takers, but there weren't, wasn't kind of a unified subculture because people were just going to the chemists or whatever and buying their drugs and doing this in private. It was once they were criminalized, you know, after the First World War, that if you wanted your drugs, you had to go to Soho or to Chinatown or to this pharmacy mm. where you could get it under the counter. And that's when you start to get a subculture emerging because drugs have been driven underground. So the people who use them become kind of a unit, a scene, a subculture. And Crowley was actually not very keen on identifying himself with that. You know, mm. he was um, sort of youthful, ignorant uh, thrill seekers. He was uh, very scornful of, you know. Um, well, he was also incredibly pompous, wasn't he? And he was also incredibly elitist. So, for instance, yeah, you, know, that's he, you right. definitely thought that those sort of experiences were sort of for the few. Yeah, exactly. Right, the people that he approved. Yeah, and he was a sort of hyper-individualist. That mm. was a phrase that was used quite a lot at that mm. time. You know, people who weren't getting with the program of kind of being progressive and mm. you know social selfish egotistical people putting mm. themselves first hyper individualists you know that was very much what mm. Crowley was he was a proud hyper individualist mm. but this was a time when uh, drug users even though they were being described as individualists they were also starting to be seen as a group because mm. you know part of the the way that you know, science and data were being used at this point was to define and classify people a lot more. So uh, once you had all these actuarial tables of insurance, you could see that people who drank heavily, you know, had worse chronic diseases and worse health and died younger than other people. So you started to get this category of drinkers and then this category of drug users, you know, who were never would have been a category before because drug users in the 19th century were well, often, you know, the, the stereotypical drug user was some sad widow on her own too much, taking a bit too much morphine or... Or a mother was, mother trying to keep the baby quiet. Was that's right. Then, right? Yeah. But suddenly you had this idea of a drug user mm. who was a sort of delinquent criminal, mm. sort of teenage young man or whatever. They, all drug users start being lumped together. And of course, that mm. was something that Crowley resisted because he mm. was not like them. But he does sort of take us full circle in a way, doesn't it? Because you make this point in the intro to the book about drug culture which is nearly always used in a pejorative way, isn't mm -hmm. it, right, drug culture? And yet, look what happened with drug culture just in the 1960s. I mean, never mind in the times that you were talking about, but, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it was responsible for a huge flowering of music and art and thinking. You know, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates yeah. put down their sort of first breakthroughs mm. to the use of acid. Mm. I don't want to get into a kind of, hey, drugs are good, because of course they're not good as well. Mm. You know, there's the, da the dangers of, we know, I've just been talking to Barry Adamson, you know, he's a heroin, right. heroin addict for 10 years. Right. Peter Coyote a couple of weeks ago, you oh, know, yeah, also, yeah. also a heroin addict, you know, and you're sort a of... Digger. A digger, yeah. yeah, and you're sort of aware of actually, and the new drugs on the street, 
you know, mm-hmm. the synthetics and stuff, the devastating consequences that they have, but often tied up with other issues to do with big pharma and to do with prohibition itself, with lack of information, mm. lack of availability of what people really want. There's always, it's a very complex area, but I think this book, okay, you could say it's preaching to the converted, with, but it sort of establishes or re-establishes the importance of the other side of the conversation and that that side of the conversation was being had. And just as drugs were prohibited, that side of the conversation was prohibited. Exactly that. Just by giving it a longer historical range than we normally do, by mm. taking it back into the 19th century and sort of back to the beginning, then you can see this pendulum swing much more clearly. Mm. Uh, that um, you know the late Victorian time was that people were very concerned about drugs, but they were also really intoxicated by all their possibilities. You know what we were learning about the mind and how they were going to help us. You know create amazing Mm. societies in the future and then at the very end of the book i sort of jumped forward 50 years from there to you know what we i think of as the psychedelic era the 50s and 60s when you see the pendulum swinging back again and people getting interested in Mm. interior experience again and mystical experience and um, a sort of more positive idea of human possibility and the idea that drugs might not just be a problem you know they might also um, enable us to sort of um, open up and expand our horizons and glimpse possibilities that we couldn't without them so we've Mm. got these two Mm. cultural conversations going you know and even during our lifetime you know, as you said, in the 90s, it was the idea that scientists might take drugs kind of seen as uh, taboo and a terrible thing. And now, you know, we just look around and we're in this world where um, barely a day goes by without some new scientific report saying, oh, we've done a brain scan on this or a survey on that. And we've discovered that drugs help people with X, Y and Z, you know. So uh, I think this, you know, looking at it in this longer frame, we can see that, you know, there are two different sort of ideas of modern life here, really. And in one of them, you know, drugs is a danger and a problem and something that has to be suppressed. And then the other, you know, it's a, it's an escape hatch to all kinds of future possibilities. The astonishing thing, really, in the debate that gets going on at the moment, or the question not asked is that why do people want to take drugs? Yeah, So right. many people want yeah. to take drugs. And what happens when they do? Mm-hmm. Right. The, the scientists, why aren't they asking that question? You know, know. The biggest question about them is, what are these experiences? It's a bit like, you know, really, we haven't made much progress on the subjects of consciousness. Or dreams, for instance. We all sleep every night and have strange experiences. And, yeah. you know, we don't really gone into it that deeply. So this huge area of, of, of human experience that re- remains kind of out of reach. And, of course, the same prohibitions going on, the same old debates with politicians trying to please a small shrinking group of the electorate, you know, by banning things and criminalising more young people. But Yeah, that's right. That's what I've always tried to do. And sort of that's really the sort of driving force of this book is trying to put uh, mm. the experience in the centre. And the aesthetic of it as well. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Finally as well, this psychonautic tradition... This Mm -hmm. self-experimenting and reporting tradition was kind of prohibited in the way that the drugs themselves were prohibited. Mm -hmm. And it went underground in the way that the drugs went underground because you said you first got interested in all this stuff with the advent of the internet when Mm -hmm. all these message boards sprung up with people talking about their drug experiences and this went into big sites like Arrowhead where people were reporting and analysing the experience and sharing knowledge about dosing, risks, 
symptoms and experiences and stuff, it actually carried on going on, didn't it, amongst a group of people who carried on sharing the information amongst themselves in a kind of countercultural underground way. Very much. And they, the sort of people who these days would quite often call themselves psychonauts. And that's, um, you know, when people talk about, you know, why it went underground in the 60s, everybody you know, always talks about, oh, Tim Leary and the hippies mm. and everybody got spooked. And um, I'm sure it's partly that, but it's also partly about the rules of the game changed in terms of testing medicines and pharmacological compounds and getting you know licensing from the authorities for them and that all became about uh, objective measures and large cohort trials and mm. data and uh, you know subjective experience disappeared from that what we're always talking about with mind-altering drugs is you know they alter the mind they alter the consciousness it is a subjective experience so if you're trying to do the science without having the subjective experience you're always trying to do it at second hand <laughs> yeah right from the 60s on scientists chemists underground chemists people working out outside the scientific mainstream they carried on taking these drugs they synthesized new drugs and uh, reported the effects of them and in doing so they kind of returned to a tradition that had been uh, you know going on since the 18th century you know I mean the sort of uh, one of the first um, episodes that I really write about is uh, Humphrey Davy the chemist and his experiments with nitrous oxide which he undertook with the romantic poets Coleridge and Southey and so on and, and when he published his report on that he described the chemical synthesis in great detail and then he said well that doesn't tell you anything unless you also know what these things do so here are my descriptions of you know by me and my friends of the experience and then when the underground chemists got going in the 60s they did the same thing Alexander Shulgin probably the most famous mm. one published his big book of chemical recipes with exactly the same structure okay here's the chemical synthesis and now here is my description of the effects we're in this odd position now where people are fascinated by subjective experiences and these inner experiences and what the psychedelic experience is um, science can only give us sort of second or third hand markers you know sort of brain scan this or neurotransmitter that and what we really want is to hear what it's like what it feels like what the experience is mike thanks for coming back to the bureau of lost culture oh absolute pleasure Stephen. thanks to Mike. It's a complicated area, isn't it? I mean, the war on drugs is obviously nonsensical and doomed to failure. It's just put huge power and resources in the hands of the underworld. And science on the subject is still mainly ignored by politicians and policymakers. I mean, in the UK at least, they seem to be much more concerned to appease the sort of dwindling number of uber-conservative voters. In the past, I've got to admit, I've been for the legalisation, or at least the criminalisation of uh, all drugs, information rather than legislation. You know, I believe in the personal sovereignty of one's consciousness. I don't want our Home Secretary, or whoever it is at the moment, telling me what I can and can't do in the privacy of my own head. But it is difficult when it comes to some of the new synthetics and street opiates and vulnerable people. But I think the message I picked up from Mike's book, really, is to expand the conversation in the way that the psychonauts that he talked about did. You know, for scientists and artists and writers, thinkers, medical practitioners, philosophers, yes, even politicians, to engage with each other around the actual experience in an attempt 
to answer the question, why have us humans sought, wanted, needed to change our state throughout history? And what's the potential good as well as the potential harms of doing so? Do check out Mike's book, Psychonauts, Drugs and the Making of the Modern Mind. It's published by Yale. It's terrific. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Thanks to you for listening. I wonder what your experiences in this area have been. You can check out all that we do at BureauOfLostCulture.com, including upcoming events. Sign up for our bulletin. Now, do us a favour. Do me a favour. Leave us a review in Apple Podcasts if you listen to this programme that way. Or write to us and tell us what you think. It's great to hear from countercultural friends. Stay safe. See you next time.